You're listening to a message from Stonegate Church in Midlothian, Texas. For more information about Stonegate and additional audio resources, visit Stonegate-Church.com. Okay, great to see you today. Colossians chapter 3, Psalms 42. Um, you're going to want to put something in there to mark those two places. We're going to get there shortly. Colossians 3, Psalms 42. Um, when we first started this series, it's been five weeks ago now, um, so part one, we introduced a fictitious man. I don't know how many of y'all remember this guy, but he was our angry guy. And so generally the scenario went like this. At the end of a service, a guy comes up to you and says, I've got an issue. I, like, I, I almost ripped our house to shreds this morning. Like, literally, I got up. My wife gave me a dirty look. I punched the wall. I, I, I went to the kitchen, grabbed a bowl of Cheerios. I wanted nothing more than just a bowl of Cheerios. Go to the fridge. There's no milk. I went berserk looking for something or someone to kill. The, the front door is burnt orange. That looks good enough to me, right? I drop kicked the front door. And so, so he, he comes to you. I mean, he's just going on the way to church. He, he yells at his kids four times just on the drive in, right? I mean, this guy has lost it. He's got a, a huge anger problem. He's a follower of Jesus and a really angry man all at the same time. And he looks at you and he says, what is my issue? I mean, what's the problem here? I mean, what, what is wrong with me, right? Okay, now let me just pause there and say this. That is a counseling moment. And so if, if you're a mom in here, you're not just a mom. You are counselor mom. See, we're all counselors. That, 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 those moments happen for all of us. You're not just dad. You are counselor dad. You're not just a friend. You're a counseling friend. See, if you live in relationship to other people, then you have the role of counselor. Now, in that moment, here's the question. You're going to give one of three sorts of advice or encouragement or responses to him. You're going to give no help. You're going to give bad help. Or you're going to give gospel-centered help. So those are three options. When he says, what is wrong with me? I am crazy. In that moment, no help, bad help, gospel-centered help. And, and here's the hope of this series for us. One is that God would use it to show us how God works change in our own hearts. And so that as, as those moments come, as counseling situations happen, that we would have a gospel-laden vocabulary so we can give gospel-centered help. Okay, this is, this is the goal that we're doing in all this. This is why we're spending a couple of months trying to work through these issues because we want you to be a gospel-centered counselor for other people and for yourself. So week one, we tried to answer the question, what's his problem? Like, what, what is his issue, right? I mean, is it his circumstances? Is it his wife really is just a little bit crazy? Like, he really does deserve milk in the fridge. I mean, what, what's his problem? And here's what we said in week one. We spent um, that week in Mark chapter 7, and we said this, that the heart is the heart of the problem. Jesus is looking at a group of people who have weird behavior stuff going on. And he's looking at them and he's saying, listen, the problem with your behavior is not your behavior. The problem with your behavior is your heart. That in your heart, you are trusting and treasuring something above me. And that's what's producing your weird behavior. See, that's idolatry language, isn't it? Trusting and treasuring something above Jesus. We have set up for ourselves something that is a functional God that we are looking to, to give us what only God can. See, behind all of our sin, the root behind all of our sin is unbelief. The, the root behind all of our sin is we're looking at God in the gospel, all that he pledges for us and saying, not going to go that way. I'm going to trust and treasure this more. 
right? This, I think this graph might help um, just kind of get this picture clear in your mind when you, when you think about your actions, your behavior, and then, and then your belief underneath those. The top of the screen is actions, right? So it's your behavior across the little line there in the middle. So we've got sinful and godly be- behavior. Okay, you can have either one. But listen, our primary focus is not to try to change your behavior. Our primary focus is to try to change your heart. Because if you kind of take a look at this, the issue with your behavior, what motivates your behavior, what fuels your behavior, what causes your behavior is what your heart is trusting in. Your heart is either trusting in God and his gospel, or it's trusting in false gods and false gospels, aka the biblical word would be idolatry, idols. So so this is the option for all of us. This is where the battle is for us right? This is where, this is where the battle is for all of us in here. Our behavior is rooted in our beliefs. What our heart is bought into that will satisfy us, give us significance, give us security. What our heart has bought into for that determines how we're going to live. Okay, this is what we're trying to say in week one, that your belief determine your behavior. Okay, now, now I want you to see this next little piece of this, just so all this kind of fits together for you. That both the God, God and his gospel and idols, false gospels, see, here's how they work in our life. They both offer you promises and warnings. See, God comes to you in the gospel and says, because of what Jesus has done, I've given you everything you need for life and godliness, Second Peter 1. Everything you need, I, I, I've got for you. Significant, satisfy everything you need. The deepest, on the deepest kind of level of your soul, I will quench your thirst. Here's the warning. You go look for it somewhere else, you can, but that's a dead-end road. See, and here, here's the promise of, of idols. We'll just take money as an illustration. See, the promise of money, this idol is, no, God will not give you everything you want. I, I, it's God plus a little bit of this is going to give you everything you want. So if you can have a little bit of God, but as long as you make sure you know that I am alone, it is me that will give you security. It's me that will give you the options that you need in life. It's me that will give you all of those things. See, there's another gospel, false gospel, offering you these other promises. And see, money will also whisper this, this warning to you. If you don't have me, you're always going to be a no one and a nobody. You're always going to be that. You're never going to have the security you crave. You're never going to have what you need. See, they're both offering these promises and warnings. And the battle for all of us in this room is on that level. What are we going to trust functionally in that moment? But what are we believing is going to give us ultimate satisfaction, significance, security? What, what are we trusting and treasuring to give us what our soul needs most? See, this was what we're trying to say in week one, that, that all of this is a heart issue. That the problem with our angry man is not his circumstances. The problem with our angry man is his heart. Okay, this, this was week one. Okay, now in week two, we picked up the fictitious conversation with the man again. All right, so, so here, here's how the conversation goes. Okay, I understand that the heart's the issue. So, so like, what's the solution then? If, if the heart's the problem, what's the answer to that? And here was where we went for week two. We're just simply trying to say that if the heart is the problem, the gospel is the only solution for it. See, you can go to Barnes and Noble and buy a good self-help book. And you can put kind of enough elbow grease into that and hard work and discipline. And you can change your behavior for a while. But you cannot change your heart with a self-help book. You can't do it. 
See, the gospel is the only remedy for your heart. That week in week two, we, we spent our time in Second Peter chapter one. And do you remember the situation that Peter's addressing in Second Peter one? He is dealing with a group of Christians that, that he says are unproductive and ineffect, are unfruitful and ineffective. That's their issue, aka modern day terminology. They're punching holes in the wall. They're drop kicking orange doors. They're immoral. I mean, pornography has, has got a grip on their heart, right? I mean, they're, they're insecure. Um, they're always looking like to the next thing to kind of to quench them. So if I can just get the next purchase, the next new, I, I mean, they're just ineffective and, and unfruitful. This is a situation. And do you remember what he tells them? See, he doesn't give them like a list of behavior modification items. He tells them in second Peter one, nine, he says, this is your problem. The issue is that you have gotten nearsighted, that you have been blinded to all that you have and all that you are in the gospel. You have forgotten that you have been cleansed from your sins. So that was his response to them. His response is to say, you have forgotten the gospel. And what you need from me in this moment to affect your behavior is to remind you of what you need to believe in. That the gospel alone will satisfy you. That the gospel alone is what you need. That the gospel alone will give you all that you need for life and godliness. See, this is what Peter does with him. Because Peter knows that the gospel is not just the foundation of the Christian life. It's the motivation of the Christian life. That it doesn't just save us, but it sustains us. See, see, Peter, Peter knows these things. He knows that the gospel is not just what God uses to make us a Christian, but the gospel is what God uses to mature us as Christians. See, so this is what we talked about in that second week, that every issue is a gospel issue because every sinful tendency we have is the direct result of us not believing in what we have in the gospel. Every behavior problem you have. So all of it is rooted in this unbelief in what God has pledged and promised for us. So this is where, this is where the issue is. Okay, now we're picking up week three now with, uh, we're, we're talking to our fictitious man. We've had those two conversations. And now I want you to picture him saying, okay, I get this idea that the heart's the problem. Okay, I got that. I've got this idea that the gospel is the solution. Okay, I'm with you. I'm following all of that. I, I know that, okay, I get every issue is a gospel issue. I know that sounds kind of, yeah, all, I get all that. But, but tell me this. How in the world does that apply on Monday morning when I wake up beside my wife? I've got bad breath. She's got bad breath. She gives me a dirty look. There's no milk in the fridge. And I just drop kick the door. How does that apply? I mean, how do you get the gospel into that? And I am so glad our fictitious man asked that, right? Because that's exactly where we're going today. How how do you get the gospel into the daily grind of your life? How do you apply? See, it's not enough to know that the heart is the problem and that the cure is the gospel, the medicine is the gospel. See, now we've got to figure out how is it that we take that medicine and we apply it to Monday morning, to Tuesday morning, to Thursday afternoon, to Friday morning. How do we apply that medicine to our daily struggles? See, this is the issue. How do we apply it? This is why Dick Kaufman, he he says it this way. The most desperate need of both believers and unbelievers. So that encompasses everyone in the room. The most desperate need in our life, he says, is to hear and appropriate or apply the gospel to their lives. 
See, here's what he's saying. Your most desperate need is not just to know the heart's the problem, the gospel is the solution, but your most desperate need is to know that and be able to take that gospel medicine and massage it into your heart when those kick the door down moments happen. See, that's the issue. How do we apply it? We've got to be able to appropriate what we know about this. Okay, so here's the goal for today. I want to make sure you leave with a real clear understanding of how you take the medicine of the gospel and massage that into the daily grind of your life. How, how you get that, how you apply that on Monday morning. Okay, now here's the answer to the, uh, to the question. How do you apply the gospel? How do, you, how do you bring it to bear on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday? Th- this is the answer to that question. We apply the gospel... By preaching the gospel to ourselves. Okay. Now, see, this is that point where if you've been around for a while, this is maybe some kind of normal vocabulary for you. But if you haven't been around for a while, you're looking at me thinking, this guy just lost his mind right there. And I get preaching the gospel to other people. I get all that. But preaching the gospel to yourself, what are you talking about, right? Okay, so this is what we want to try to do today. I want to try to answer what I'm talking about there, how this looks in our life. I've kind of got this organized around three kind of basic questions with preaching the gospel to yourself. One is, what is that? Two is, is why do we need to do that? And three, how, how does this look in, in our life? Like, what is it, like, how, how do we do this preaching the gospel to yourself thing? Okay, so first, let's take this, this issue of trying to get some clarity on what is preaching the gospel to yourself. Let me define it for you. Define like this. It's taking the truth of the gospel. Okay, so it's taking the truth of the gospel and speaking it to yourself so that you stay mindful of all that you have and all that you are in Christ. Okay, so preaching the gospel to yourself is is keeping the gospel on the front, like part of your brain. Preaching the gospel to yourself is taking all that God pledges and all that God promises to you because of what Christ has done for you. And it's constantly, consistently, throughout the week, reminding yourself of that. Recalling these things. Talking to yourself about these things. Keeping these things right before you. So that when you wake up on Monday with bad breath and a lady with bad breath beside you, that you've got the gospel in front of you. That when you wake up and there's no milk in the fridge, the gospel is what comes to mind. So that when you wake up, or actually you're in your office at 3 p.m. and they say you're fired, the gospel is on your mind. Okay, you get what we're saying here. Preaching the gospel to yourself is consistently and constantly reminding yourself of all that God pledges, all that God promises to you. Okay, that, that's what it is. That's defined. Now, I want to display this for you by kind of watching um, how this kind of works itself out in some scriptures. So Colossians chapter 3. I want you to, to go there first. Colossians chapter 3. We're going to look at verse 16. I want you to see, I, I hope this will help you kind of get some clarity as to what we're talking about here. Okay, so Colossians 3.16 starts like this. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Now, let me pause there because I want to make a quick distinction or kind of clarify what he's talking about. When he says word of Christ, if you go back and look in Colossians, here's what he means by that. Like, like everybody commentary world would agree with this. What he is specifically talking about is not general truth 
He is talking about specifically the truth of the gospel, the truth of what Christ has done for you. So when he says, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, he is saying, drench yourself in the gospel, in all that God pledges and promises. Drench yourself in all that you have and all that you are in Christ. Soak in that. Okay, now now I want to make sure this distinction is clear for you. That he's not just saying truth, he is saying gospel truth. And listen, in the moment, it makes all the difference in the world. Let me give you this scenario. Picture yourself in the doctor's office. And the doctor walks in, you can tell he's got a solemn face. This is not going to be good news. He looks at you and says, it's not good news. You've got cancer and you've probably got less than a year to live. Now just picture that scene, feel that for just a second. You have got less than a year to live. If you've got a family, you're gone. Now in that moment, I want you to see the difference between truth and gospel truth. Here's truth. Truth is... God is great. God is in control. There is not a single cell of cancer on planet earth that is not under the dominion and rule of God, that does not fit into the plan and purpose of God. There is not one cancer cell that does that. God is great. But can I just tell you that saying God is great in the middle of that doctor's office provides no comfort for your soul? Now let me show you the difference between that truth and gospel truth. Here's what gospel truth is. Gospel truth is God is great. Like there is not a single cell of cancer on planet earth that is outside of his rule and dominion. That does not fit into his plans and purposes. I have got a sovereign God. God is great. Here's gospel. And that great God is also my good dad. That as I stand here in this doctor's office, knees buckling, I can be confident that he is working for my best interest. That according to Romans 8, 28, because Christ has loved me and I love Christ, he is going to steward all of this for my eternal good. See, it's not just God is great, but it's God is great for me in this moment that he is leveraging all of his greatness for his son. That I can be sure when I see cancer that's about to kill me, that although it seems like God might be killing me, he's actually saving me. See, that's the difference between truth and gospel truth. Do you see the distinction there? One is going to provide comfort for your heart. The other one is going to say, great, God is good. He's great. He's all that, but I'm still dying. The other says, God is great and he's great for me. He's a good dad for me. So he gives me nothing but the best, even cancer. You see the difference? So he's saying, let the word of Christ, let the gospel, all that God has done for you through Jesus, all that that Jesus has secured for you, let that dwell in your hearts richly. Okay, now listen to what he goes on to say. He goes on and he says this. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. And then he says this, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. I want you to circle that, that two words, one another. Okay, now that word one another, I want to make sure you, you've got a clear picture of all that's going on here. Typically, when that pronoun would be translated one another, okay, the, the Greek pronoun there, it would be in a, like a reciprocal, like, tense. 
So it'd be a reciprocal pronoun. That would typically be the one another's in the Bible. This word right here is not a reciprocal pronoun. It's a reflexive pronoun. And when you see this word in the Greek in a reflexive sense, throughout the scriptures, throughout the New Testament, you don't see it translated consistently one another. Normally it's translated something different. When in the New Testament, that reflexive pronoun is used over 300 times, a little over 300 times. Out of those 300 times, listen to the breakdown of this. 97 times it's translated like this himself. 42 times themselves. 36 times yourself. 36 times like your own. 46 times would be his or ourselves. Okay, I want you to see the point here. That that typically when this word is, is translated in the New Testament, it's not translated like one another, like all of us together. It's translated like you, like you, your, his, her, your own. Okay, so I think it would be um, accurate to read Colossians 3.16 like this. I want you to read it again. I want to add four words in here that I think would describe all that that pronoun is saying. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing your own heart, your own soul, teaching and admonishing your own heart and one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thanksgiving in your hearts to God. Okay, so listen to what I'm doing. I am affirming that it's saying one another, that that we should, as a corporate body, let the, the word of Christ dwell in us richly, and we should teach and admonish one another. This is the reason we gather on Sunday morning. Did you know that? The reason we gather is so we can corporately get together, sing of all that God has done for us in Christ, and admonish one another together in that. This is why we gather. But that's not all that that verse is saying. It's also saying that that word of Christ that dwells richly in you, that you need to admonish your own heart with it. That you need to preach to your own heart with it. Okay, that's Colossians 3.16. Now I want you to turn to Psalms 42. And I want want to show you an example of how this plays itself out. Of this teaching and admonishing your own heart. Okay, this idea. Psalms 42. I mean, to see the psalmist put this idea of preaching to yourself in action. Um, in Psalms 42, there's, there's two verses that are repeated, identical, they say the identical same thing, repeated twice in verse 5 and 11. So you can take whichever one you want, 5 or 11, it's going to say the same thing for you. It says this, watch what the psalmist does. Now listen, I mean, listen to how, how he goes about this. He says this, why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Now, do you see what he's doing there? He is calling himself out. He's looking at his heart and he is saying this. Heart, soul, what is your problem? Why are you doing this? Why are you feeling like this? Why are you believing this? You see what he's doing? He's preaching to himself. He's calling himself out. He's looking at at himself and saying, heart. We have got a problem. And then he commands himself something. Look what he commands. Next uh, phrase. He commands himself. Hope in God. So this is what you're doing and you got to stop doing that. Hope in God. You see what he's doing here? He's commanded himself. And then he assures himself of something. Look what he says at the end. For I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. So you see what the psalmist is doing. He is taking gospel and he's preaching it to himself. Okay, now I want you to listen to, I'm going to read you a paragraph. And I want you to listen to this paragraph that for me over the last several years has been one of the most influential paragraphs in my life. 
Okay, so I want, I want to read this to you. This is by um, a person that would be considered by many the greatest preacher of the 20th century. His name was Martin Lloyd-Jones. He was a preacher in, uh, in England. Listen to what he says as he's commenting on Psalms 42, 5. Okay, and he, he's doing a set of sermons over spiritual depression. And this is what he says as he comments on this verse, what we just saw in Psalms 42. It'll be on the screen for you. He says this, Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you are listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Now, you need to think about that for a while. I'm serious. I mean, you need, to, you need to think about that idea. Okay, he goes on to say, take those thoughts that come to you at the moment that you wake up in the morning. Somebody's talking. Who's talking? His response, Your, yourself is talking to you. Okay, now can we just pause for just a second? Because this is where it kind of gets weird, doesn't it? I mean, this is where you look at me and you're like, dude, what are you talking about? Talking to yourself? Who's talking to yourself? What are you? You talk to yourself. Can I just say that? That, that's like, it sounds kind of weird, doesn't it? But it's not weird. It's part of what it means to be a human being. Listen, all of us have in our, that's a problem right there. I'm going to need that in just a second. <laughs> Thanks, Hunter. <laughs> okay, can we get back into this weird discussion for a second? Um, all of us have in our minds a constant reel of communication going. All of us do. You do, I do, we all do. Okay, maybe you can think of it this way. We are constant interpreters. We're always um, interpreting situations and circumstances around us. We're always organizing those into, into how we should respond, what we think about those, these categories. We're, we're always analyzing how we are responding, what, what's happening inside of us, what's happening outside there. And then we convince ourselves in how to respond. Like, what would be the appropriate response to this? We all do that. That's part of what it means to be human. See, like, if if somebody were to give you a thought and then you said this to them, um, hey, let me think about that for a second. You know what's really, what you're really saying? You're really saying, hey, let me go talk to myself about what you just said for a second. See, that's what you're really doing. You're going to go over in a corner, wherever you're going to go to your desk, and you're going to roll this around in your brain. You're going to talk to yourself. You're going to say, what do I think about that? You're going to analyze. You're going to interpret. Then you're going to come up with a response to it. See, we all do this. You talk to yourself. We all talk to ourselves. When you wake up in the morning, there is a constant reel of thoughts that are flowing through your brain, that are talking to you. See, this is what Martin Lloyd-Jones is saying here. Okay, now here's the problem with this tape that's going on in all of our brain, is that tape is not dominated by the gospel. That tape is dominated by that old sinful remnant of our former self. So this is the problem for all of us. Um, C.S. Lewis, he says it this way. When you wake up in the morning, your thoughts, your wishes, your desires for the day rush upon you like a pack of wild animals. See, that's what's happening when you wake up. A pack of wild animals is coming after you. It's called self-talk. Now take our angry man, our fictitious angry man. Remember this guy? Okay, take what's happening to him. He woke up that morning and here's what happened. He's thinking, man, I deserve better than this. I've got bad breath. She's got bad breath. She just gave me a dirty look. I deserve a wife that doesn't give me a dirty look. See, this is self-talk going on. And then he gets to the fridge and he's thinking this. I want more than anything else in the world right now. I just want a bowl of Cheerios. That's all I want. I just want a bowl of Cheerios. He pours the bowl of Cheerios. He goes to the fridge and he sees no milk. And you know what the self-talk starts happening there? I am about to kill something right now. So he looks at the door. It's orange. Great option. Drop kick. You see what's happening? 
This is for all of us. This is how we respond. This is what's happening in all of our lives all of the time. We're consistently talking to ourselves, but the problem is that self-talk is dominated by our own sinful self. Okay, now this is what Martin Lloyd-Jones' response to all that is. Okay? Now, are we past the weirdness? Can we all admit that we're all there? This is all of us. This is not like one of us, the weird people. It's all of us. Okay? This is part of what it means to be a human being. Now, listen to how he responds to this. Now, this man's treatment was this. This is what the psalmist did in that moment. Okay? Here's what he says. Instead of allowing this self to talk to him, he starts talking to himself. I mean, he kind of takes the bull by the horns here, doesn't he? Okay, look what he goes on to say. Here's what he says. Why are you down or cast down, O my soul? He asked. His soul has been depressing him, crushing him. So he stands up and says, self, listen for a moment. I'll speak to you. You see what the psalmist is doing here? Okay, he goes on. Now listen to this statement. This is huge. He says, the main art in the matter of spiritual living. The main art in the matter of spiritual living is to know how to handle yourself. You have to take yourself in hand and you have to address yourself. Preach to yourself. Question yourself. You must say to your soul, why are you cast down? What business have you to be disquieted? You must turn on yourself, unbraid yourself, exhort yourself and say to yourself, hope in God. Instead of muttering in this depressed, unhappy way, and then you must go on to remind yourself of God, who God is and what God has done and of what God has pledged himself to do. Then having done that, end on this great note, defy that old sinful self and defy other people and defy the devil and the whole world and say with this man, this psalmist, I shall yet praise him for the help of my countenance. Do you see what Martin Lloyd-Jones is saying here? He's looking at what's happening in the Psalms. He's saying, listen, the primary art of spiritual living is doing what that psalmist just did. To address himself, to preach to himself, to take all that God promises for him and pledges to him. All of these gospel promises and to preach those to his heart. Okay, this is what we mean when we say preaching to yourself. Okay, now with that said, we're going to answer question number two here. Why preach the gospel to yourself? Like, why, why is that such an important thing to do? Why is this such a necessary thing that we all have to do? C.J. Mahaney is one of my favorite authors, and, and he even goes as far as to say this. Preaching the gospel to yourself is the most important daily habit a Christian can establish. I want you to listen to that. It is the most important daily habit a Christian can establish. Now, why is that? Okay, let, let, let me give two answers just real quick. Number one, the gospel is the power of God for salvation. Okay, that's Romans 1.16. The power of God for salvation. Now, if you've been around here long, you hear us talk about this all the time, that the gospel does not just save us from the past penalty of our sin. It does do that, and that is a glorious and a great thing. But it doesn't just save us from the past penalty of our sin. It doesn't just make us right with God. It just doesn't save us, redeem us on the front end of our Christian life. It also continues to save us from the current power of sin in our life. 
Okay, the gospel does both of those things, foundation and motivation. It makes us Christians and matures us as Christians. So it does all of that. Okay, now when you get to Galatians chapter five, here's kind of the the battle that it gives in the Christian life. It says that you've got this remaining kind of remnant of the flesh still in you. So you've got the flesh and then you've got the spirit and there's this battle in your heart. Now let me show you this graph just one more time to make sure this, this is clear in you. See, it's a battle for belief. You've got the flesh that is saying, believe this idol. And you've got the spirit that is saying, believe God. God is good for you. All that you need for life and God is he's giving you. See, this is the battle in all of our hearts that rages when we get up on Monday morning, when we get up on Tuesday morning, Wednesday morning, Friday morning. All we, this is the battle that rages for all of us. They're both offering promises and warnings. And we're trying to decide who we're going to trust right now in this moment. And this is what preaching the gospel to yourself does. Preaching the gospel to yourself is what warms your heart in the direction of God. See, preaching the gospel to yourself is the thing that in this moment readies you for war. In in this moment, preaching the gospel, holding the gospel before you and reminding yourself of all that God promises and pledges to you. In that moment, it is what turns your heart from idolatry and turns your heart toward God. It is what prepares you for war. It is what prepares you on a daily basis to run to God. This is why Jerry Bridges says a Christian has to preach the gospel to himself every day. This is why C.J. Mahaney says it's the most important discipline a Christian can do on a daily basis. Preach the gospel to yourself. Second reason why it's, it's necessary for you to preach the gospel to yourself goes like this. We are prone to forget the gospel. Did you know? I mean, we're, we're prone to forget this thing. I mean, maybe if you thought about the New Testament, especially like Paul's writings like this. When you think about what Paul is doing to the churches he's writing for, one of his primary emphasis that he's trying to accomplish is to remind them of the gospel. We spent almost 30 weeks in Ephesians a few months ago. And and in Ephesians, it's just such a, it's so interesting to think about this. He spends the first three chapters reminding them of all that they have and all that they are in the gospel. He gives them one command in the first three chapters. And it's in Ephesians 2, um, 11, 12, 13. He's looking at these Gentiles, the, these, these Christians, and he's saying, you need to remember the gospel. That you who were once far off, you have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Remember the gospel. This is what he's doing in them. Um, you remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, how he starts off that chapter? He says, brothers, Christians, fellow followers of Christ, brothers, let me remind you of the gospel, which I preach to you, which you receive, and in which you now stand. See, he's constantly reminding his churches of the gospel. This is what Peter is doing in Second Peter chapter 1. He is reminding them of the gospel because there is a universal reality for all followers of Jesus. It's not just a New Testament thing, an early church thing. It's a universal reality that you, that I, that we are prone to forget the gospel. Did you know that about yourself? That you are prone to forget the gospel? See, it, it's my privilege and honor. Like I, I'm driving to, to work or to preach all that this morning, right? I'm driving here this morning and, and I'm praying on the way. And I'm, here, here's my prayer. God, I thank you for the privilege of preaching to these precious people that you have given me. 
I, th- I thank you for the privilege of weekly reminding them of the gospel. That's my goal in preaching to you every week, to remind you of the gospel. But can I tell you something? A weekly reminder of the gospel will not be sufficient on Tuesday when you go into your office and your boss says you're fired. It won't be sufficient. See, on on Wednesday when the teacher calls and says, listen, your little kid just bit another girl in the classroom. On on Thursday when you get a phone call that has terrible, terrible news on the other end of that. See, on Friday when you are full of pride, self-sufficiency. On Saturday when you wake up and your conscience is in overdrive. Like you wake up and your conscience is just assaulting war on you. Like it's just revving in your mind, accusing you of all of this stuff. Like, right, you, you just fell for the 300th time in the same thing and your conscience is ramped up. It, it's, it's convincing you, telling you that you are now worthless, that you are now beyond the grace of God, that God no longer cares for you, that God has abandoned you, that you are now damaged goods, right? That you are now dirty, that you are now beyond grace. Why are you even living right now? You're taking somebody else's oxygen. See, this is your conscience on overdrive. And listen, in all of those moments, I want you to hear this. My weekly reminder is not enough for you. You have to develop the discipline. You have to develop the habit of daily reminding yourself of all that God promises to you. So that in that moment, you'll believe it. In the moment that you lose your job, you'll believe it. In the moment that you get the bad news, you'll believe it. In the moment that the, that the, the teacher called, you'll believe it. In the moment when you're prideful, you'll believe it. See, this is essential for all of us in here. It is the way that, that we keep our hearts in tune with all that God has done for us in Jesus. See, this, this is why we've got to develop this habit of preaching the gospel to ourselves. I, 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 I love the words of one pastor, and I would affirm this. Here's what he says. This is not the only discipline to practice as a believer, but I can tell you that in my life, this has become the most important habit for me. And I'll tell you this, for me, over the last several years, this has become the most important thing for me to mature in, for me to develop the ability to do, to preach the gospel to my own heart. Okay, so last question, and and we'll finish it up with with all this. Last question goes like this. Okay, so, and I think, by the way, this is where a lot of us are. Like we get, okay, like I think maybe we can even buy into preaching the gospel, why we need to preach the gospel. But then the question becomes, how do you do that? Like, I get what you're saying, but I have no idea what that looks like on Tuesday morning when I wake up, right? And so I want to kind of give you some help here. And I'm not going to pick up all the pieces today. Um, That's what the month of May is essentially going to be for us. And so I want to give you just some, some things to start on as it relates to this idea of how do you go about doing this? And first one will be this. How do you do this? Number one, We have to stare at and study the gospel. You have to stare at and study all that God pledges and promises to you. In other words, if you are going to preach the gospel to your own heart, you have to know that gospel. 
See, if you're going to preach the gospel to your heart when you're battling insecurity, you've got to know how the gospel applies to insecurity. If you're going to preach the gospel to your own heart when you're battling pornography, you've got to know how the the gospel addresses pornography. If you're going to apply the gospel when money is whispering its warnings and promises to you, then you've got to learn how the gospel applies to that idol. See, you've got to learn the gospel. Like Like you've got to get out of this idea of I can live in like the kiddie pool of the gospel. You've got to grow in your understanding of all that Christ has done for you. It's implications for your life. How it applies to all these circumstances and scenarios to your life. You've got to study and stare at the gospel. I think it's interesting. When you go to Ephesians chapter 1, you know the first thing that Paul prays for the church in Ephesus? Ephesians 1.18. He prays for them that the eyes of their heart would be enlightened so that they could see the bright and vivid colors of the gospel. Their their heart could see that. In in 1 John, I love what John says. He says, see, behold. See what sort of love the Father has loved you with, that you should be called a son or daughter of God. You You know that passage? See, that see, that behold, that's an imperative. That's a command. John is saying, do this. You have to study and stare at this. You've got to drench yourself in this. You've got to saturate yourself in this. You've got to know this stuff. See, this is what Paul calls in uh, Ephesians 3, 8. He calls the gospel the unsearchable riches of Christ. I love that. See, when he says it's unsearchable, he doesn't mean that, well, you might as well not even try because you're not going to be able to figure it out anyway. That's not what he means. When he says unsearchable, he means that you can spend your life on the search for new gospel gems and you'll never come to the same one twice. He's saying that you can live your life in, in, in kind of this gospel discovery mode and you'll keep finding new diamonds for the rest of your life. See, maybe you could think of it this way. Uh, Picture yourself that you're homeless and you're not just homeless, but you're homeless and you owe a $10 million debt. A guy walks up to you and says, uh, I have got a billion dollar check. I'm giving it to you. That's a lot of zeros on a check. And then he gives you this red packet and he says, and listen, I'm not just giving you that check though. I have bought properties from you from coast to coast and everywhere in between thousands of them. And that red packet will tell you all of them. Now, picture yourself in that moment. You're not just going to go cash the check and leave the red, uh, the, the, the red packet on the desk. You're not going to do that. You know what you're going to do? You're going to go cash that check. You're probably going to look at that bank account for a minute. Just make sure it's all in there. And then you're going to go take that packet and you're going to spend your life looking at all that he has given to you and all that he has purchased for you and all of these properties you have over here on the East Coast, the West Coast, everywhere in between. You're going to open up that packet and you're going to figure out what it is that you have. Now, listen, that is a horrible illustration of what the gospel has given you. Because the check is much bigger and the red package much better. God is saying, I've given you everything everything you need. Go look at it, study it, stare at it. Can I just kind of give you a primer for that? Just to wet your taste buds with that. All that you have and all that you are in the gospel. We read this list several months ago, but I want to read this to you again, just to, just to get this in the frontal part of your mind, all that you have, you've got to go on a daily task of gospel discovery. Listen to this. I want you just to listen. You might even close your eyes and listen to all that you have and all that you are in the gospel. This is, this is what it affects as far as your past. Here's what the Bible says. That you are now, that I am an adopted 
I am adopted as a child of God, according to Ephesians 1.5. I am a son of God and one in Christ. I am an heir of God since I am a son of God, Galatians 4. I am his friend. I am a member of his body. I am a member of God's household. I belong to God. I am included. I am a citizen of heaven. I have been chosen. I am chosen and dearly loved by God. I am chosen before the foundation of the world, before creation. I am part of a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession to proclaim his excellencies. I am set free from the law of sin and death and from being a slave to sin. I am no longer condemned. I am a new creation. I am alive with him. I am blameless. I have been justified. I have been given God's glorious grace lavishly and without restriction. I have redemption in him through his blood. I am forgiven. I am God's workmanship. I am a dwelling place for the Holy Spirit. I am the righteousness of God. I am secure. I am protected. He is our peace, my peace. This affects your current life. I am his disciple. I have access to the father. I can approach God with freedom and confidence. I have a right to come boldly before the throne of God. I am prayed for by God. I am uh, I am not alone. I have hope. I am assured of all things working for the good. I know there's a purpose for all of my sufferings. This is what the gospel tells you. I am not in want. I possess the mind of Christ. I am promised an abundant life. I can be content in any situation. I am faithful because of Christ being faithful for me. I am righteous and holy. I am his co-worker. I am a minister of reconciliation. I can bring glory to God. I can mature spiritually. I can be kind and compassionate to other, others. I can forgive others. I can understand what God's will is. I can give thanks for all things in all situations. I don't have to always have my own agenda. I can honor God through our marriage. I can parent my children with composure. I can be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his mind. I am more than a conqueror. This is how it affects your future. I am promised eternal life. I am blameless at the final judgment. I am victorious over sin, death, and Satan, and the law and into eternal life. I will resemble him when he returns. I am qualified to share in his inheritance, and I am confident that God will complete the work he has begun in me. See, this is what the gospel is for you. See, this is the packet for you. So we've got to take the packet, open it up, and live in it. Stare at it. Study it. See, the Puritans used to say that as Christians, we live far below our privileges. You know why that is? Because for us, for so many of us as Christians, we do not know our privileges. See the problem? So we've got to stare at and study the gospel. Second thing, we have to develop a gospel-laden vocabulary. See, it's, it's not enough to know that the heart's the problem, gospel solution. It's not, it's not enough to know those things. We have to develop a vocabulary for all that God has done for us in Jesus. Like all of that stuff we just read, we have to develop a vocabulary for how we're going to preach that to our heart. For in the, in, in Monday morning, when everything breaks loose, how we are going to address our heart with that gospel. When we're battling insecurity, pornography, all of these things, how we are going to develop that a vocabulary to develop or to develop a vocabulary so we can address our heart in all of those things. A gospel laden vocabulary. And this is where we're going in the month of May. Our hope is to give you that sort of a vocabulary. Us as a church family, a vocabulary that we can address our own hearts and the hearts of one another. And last thing, and we'll finish it up with this. 
So we study and stare at the gospel, develop a gospel-laden vocabulary, and lastly, we position ourselves in a gospel-speaking community. In a gospel-speaking community. See, Colossians 1.16, or 3.16, it's not just saying preach the gospel to your own heart. It is also saying admonish one another. Encourage one another. Speak the gospel to one another. He's also saying that. So, so we've, got to be, we've got to grow into a body of people, a group of people that can speak the gospel to one another. That can admonish one another. And dads in the room, I want you to look at me. If you're a dad or a husband, let me tell you the number one way that you can serve your family. This is the number one way you can serve your family. Is to know the gospel and have a vocabulary that you can speak the gospel to your family and pray the gospel over your family to address specific needs in their life. This is, the number, this is probably the number one way that you can serve your family. Ladies in the room, the number one way you can serve your family is to develop a gospel-rich vocabulary so you can pray over and address specific behavior, sin, their heart, with the gospel. And, and here's why all that, and by the way, as a church family, you know the number one way you can serve our church family? is to develop a gospel-laden vocabulary where you can address the, the, the needs, the issues, the heart of one another in this room, in your home group. You can do that. See, and here's why this is so important. There are going to be days where your best gospel sermon to your own heart will not appease your heart. You know that? That you can preach your best sermon some days and it's not going to work for you. And you know what you need in that moment is a group of people that are breathing gospel air, that have a gospel vocabulary, that can speak the gospel into that for you. I think it's interesting in 1 Thessalonians 4, um, Paul gives these gospel realities and how they relate to the resurrection and how they relate to our death. That one day we're going to be raised with resurrected bodies. And then in verse 18 of 1 Thessalonians 4, he says, and take those truths and encourage one another with them. You know, one of the things I think is, as far as Paul's vision for the local church is that it would be a group of people who admonish and encourage one another with the gospel. In with this story. A few months ago, uh, a group of a couple of pastors and I, we are doing an assessment on a church planter that's wanting to come into the network of churches that we're part of that plant churches. And so we're meeting, um, three of us pastors, we're meeting with this man and his wife. And it was a little bit of a unique situation. This man had a he wasn't planning a church right then. He had actually, he was four years into planning a church. So he was kind of coming after the fact. And man, I, I want to tell you, th- this was a painful assessment. Um, this, this guy, he's married. His wife is there. They've got four kids. Um, he's working 60 hours a week at Lowe's. And in the midst of all that, he's trying to be a good dad and a good husband. And he's trying to plant a church, prepare sermons, do all that. I mean, I, I'm listening. Oh, and by the way, take all of that scenario four years into it and all that. And he's got 12 adults at his church four years later. Now I'm sitting there in the assessment. I mean, I'm hurting for this guy. I mean, my, my heart just hurts for him. Like I admire his perseverance, but I, like I'm worried about his soul. Like you can see unbelief like bullet holes all through this guy's heart. And so um, we kind of lay all that out. And I just leaned over the table and I said, man, how are you doing? I would probably want to quit and crawl under a hole four years in if I were you. 
how are you doing? And he starts to respond. And in the midst of his response, I look over at his wife and she has just lost it. She's in tears, just sobbing. And I want you to hear what his wife said. She kind of looks at us and looks at him and says, I try to daily remind him that his, like God's love, God's acceptance of him is not dependent upon how good of a church planter he is. But I try to tell him that God's love is not dependent upon how good a sermon is that weekend. That his standing before God is not dependent upon anything but the work of Jesus for him. That God has adopted him, accepted him, cleansed him, And none of that is dependent upon how many people show up on Sunday. And you talk about just a powerful and precious moment. I mean, she's preaching to me. And and here's my hope for our ladies in the room. That, That one day you would get the gospel in this sort of a way. And listen, she didn't have a vocabulary like I'm talking. She didn't, she's never heard of preaching the gospel to herself. She just knows the gospel. She knows her man's heart and she knows how the gospel applies to that. And and here's my hope for our ladies in the room, that you would know your gospel, you'd know your, your man's heart, and you'd be able to preach the gospel to his heart like that. See, in that moment, she took all that we have, all that God pledges and promises, and she washed that over her, her, over her husband's heart. For you men in the room, that you would know your gospel, you'd know the heart of your family, and that you could speak and pray the gospel into them. And as a church family, by God's grace, that we would become a people that know the gospel, know one another's hearts, and by grace that we could admonish and speak the gospel to one another. Amen? Let's pray. To our men in the room, I just want to encourage you with this. If you're going to resolve for one thing in the next year, if you want to put one thing before you that this has to happen this year, study and stare at the gospel. I mean, grab gospel-rich passages, a Romans 3, 21 through 26, a Romans 5, 1 through 11, a a Romans 8, and Isaiah 53. Get gospel-rich passages and drench your heart in them. For our ladies, there's one thing you need to do this year. Study and stare at the gospel. God, I pray for our church family. God, I pray by your grace, we we would open up the red packet and we would look at, we would live in, we would search through all that you have done for us in Jesus. That we would know more of the unsearchable riches of Christ next year at this time. God, that you would develop in us a gospel-laden vocabulary that we can address the needs, the heart issues of those around us. So God, I pray that you would grow us in this. We tell you that we we need help. We are humble before you. We need you to do this. So God, will will you help us? Will you do this sort of a thing in our church family? It's for your name that we pray. Amen. Why don't you stand with us? 
Thank you for listening to this message from Stonegate Church, located in Midlothian, Texas. For service times, additional audio and study resources, as well as information about our church, please visit us at stonegate-church.com.